The book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Well, we started in this book last week, um, this book that is all about the evil that is happening in Israel and the prophet where we left him last week was sad and he was confused and he was frustrated about everything that he's seeing, all the moral decay in the country. And he's saying, God, what's going on? Like what's happening? Why aren't you doing something? And when we look around our world today, I think sometimes we think, God, what in the world is going on? As Alicia likes to say, what in the actual world? (laughs) That's her favorite saying right now. Um, And normally the complaint, he takes his complaint to God. Normally the complaints we have are for ourselves, right? But he takes his complaint for the country to the Lord because it didn't look like he was doing anything evil everywhere from the people and how they treated each other to the government and how things were being carried out there. Um, No justice. And Habakkuk says, why God? The law seems paralyzed. Seems like justice isn't going forth, right? Seems like the wicked are hemming in the righteous, um, I don't know if you guys saw the headlines this week. I, you know, don't usually do this, but I was online and looking at the news. Um, and you guys remember the uh, QAnon shaman is what they called him. The guy with the, you know, he was all painted up and he wore the buffalo hat uh, as he went in to storm the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, he got sentenced this week to three years in prison, 41 months in prison for that day. And of course, there's more coming in. You know, I don't know, you storm the Capitol building. Maybe he deserves something. I don't know. But three years he got sentenced. And then right next to that story was a story of a 20-year-old guy who had sexually assaulted four teenagers, and he's not going to see the inside of a jail cell. He got eight, eight years probation. That's it. So this guy gets eight years probation. The other guy gets three years in prison. Justice seems perverted at this point. Doesn't seem like it's going forth. So God tells Habakkuk, he says, relax, I am going to raise up the Babylonians and they're going to come in and they're going to be my tool, my judgment tool against the country. And Habakkuk, you know, obviously freaks out and says, God, they are worse than we are. Like, how can you use these guys to come in and punish us? I was thinking maybe you do something like a famine or something like that, that would bring people back. And oftentimes this is what we do maybe in our minds. We don't always say it, but we like to rank our sins um, against other people and say, well, I may lie occasionally, but I'm not selling drugs, right? But God says, it's all evil in my sight. It's all evil, and it all needs to be judged. In Romans 3.23, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think that was the first verse I learned. Uh, when I was in kindergarten, we had these cards. They were alphabet cards. And so every letter of the alphabet started with a verse. And I think that was the first one. All have sinned and fallen short of the goal. I think that was my very first one. Sin is sin no matter how you slice it. Um, and he says, look outside of your country. Look outside of your city. Look outside of your country. People everywhere have rebelled against me. And the thing is, God will use whatever means necessary to bring his people back to him. Because he's more concerned with relationship and he's more concerned about your salvation than he is about your comfort and your prosperity. Because what can happen is our prosperity and our comfort can actually lead us to wander away from the Lord. And we see this in Israel's history time and time again. They would get judged by God and then they would come back to him and then they would start to, you know, get, have success and they would become comfortable, and then they would fall into idolatry, and the whole cycle would repeat again, and God would use these judgments to bring his people back to him. Uh, Jesus even said, he said, listen, you cannot serve 
two masters. You can't do it. You can't serve. You can't hold up prosperity and comfort above the Lord and serve him too. Like he said, you're either going to serve one and hate the other. And so he said, you can't serve God and money. That's what he said, because people were getting all caught up in money. He said, trust God to provide for you. So Habakkuk protests again after God tells him that. And we touched on how you can protest faithfully or you can protest unfaithfully. And a faithful protest addresses God personally and it addresses him humbly. It's, it sounds like this, God, how could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? But you can also protest unfaithfully, which is impersonal and judgmental of God in saying, how could God allow this to happen? You see the difference? One engages God in conversation. The other is accusatory. So one frames the question as a conversation, not an accusation. That's a very big point. And so what he does is a faithful protest. And so chapter one ends with him asking the question, is this just going to be the way it is forever? Like, God, you have made us like fish, and they're hauling us out, and it looks like it's not going to have any end. And so this week, we jump into chapter two, where God gives him an answer. Um, After that, after he asks God the question, he says in verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk shows us once again what to do when things don't make sense, when things are confusing, when we want to take things to God. We seek him, we seek the Lord. Isaiah 55, 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. And the implication there is that there will be a time where he won't be near. There will be a time when he won't be found if you continue in your wickedness. So call on him now. While you're on this planet, while you're here, while you're breathing, call on him while he's near. And these conversations that Habakkuk had with God took place over a period of time. Uh, They didn't take place all at once. That's the reason why he's going to the wall to listen for an answer. It would be nice if God showed us everything, right? If he gave us the big picture all at once, because that would make it a lot easier Like, God, I could walk this path if you would just show me what you're doing. But like the psalmist tells us, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's not street lights. It's just a lamp. He gives us enough to show us the next step. And that's what we need to do. Because if he showed us everything, what we have a tendency to do is say, thanks, God, I'll take it from here. You've shown me, now I'll do my part. And then we tend to get away from what his guidance might be and relying on him. And so what he does is he climbs the wall to get an answer. He stations himself there intentionally. And he wants a detailed word from the Lord that will sustain him and sustain the people. He needs a detailed response because the people obviously aren't going to like what he has to say. And they're not going to like that there's going to be suffering coming, this invasion. That's why we hear him saying, I will look out to see what he says to me and what I will say concerning my complaint. God, the people are going to ridicule me. They're not going to believe me. They're going to have a tougher time with this than I am. In fact, they're probably not going to believe you. So I need your words because I don't have any words to give them. I need your words. We live in a world that does not want to hear words of God's judgment. I don't want to hear it. They like love and they like grace and they like forgiveness and come as you are. But 
what they don't like to hear is you need to be renewed in your mind. You need a savior. You need to crucify your flesh and you need to live, live a holy life. People don't want to uh, hear that. So because that is the case, I would urge all of us to have his words and not our words to be able to answer people with the word. Because if we're in a position where people are questioning us, where people are ridiculing us, um, if we're just trying to respond with persuasion, if we're just arguing with them, that's not going to change them. Only God and the Holy Spirit are going to do it. And that only happens when we use his word. Um, the Bible doesn't promise to make our lives smoother. It doesn't promise to make the ride smoother. Um, if we are arguing or trying to convince people that, look, if you add Jesus to your life, things are going to be better. Things are going to be easier. We know that's not the case. We've been promised that that's not going to be the case. We are going to have time uh, that are going to be tough. They persecuted Jesus, and if we're following him, they're going to persecute us too, right? They're going to ridicule us too. Jesus told his disciples, he said, the servant is not above his master. If they're persecuting me, guys, they're going to give you a hard time too. Um, So it's not going to make our lives smooth sailing. But if we tell people that, that it's going to make them more acceptable, that it's going to make them more fashionable, then we are feeding them non-truths, feeding them lies is what we're doing. It's not going to make them um, trust in the Lord the way that they need to. So let's listen to God's response to Habakkuk as he seeks and as he waits Verse two, and the, so we have a lot to go through today. So I'm going to try to keep up the pace. Game's not till 3.30 anyway. So the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. If it seems it will surely come, it will not delay. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God tells him to write it down and to make it plain. Write it down and make it so simple, so concise that somebody who is running by would be able to read it and make sense of it, kind of like a billboard. Put it up there, make it easy so that people won't get confused. Um, If you pulled somebody aside and you told it to them, they would be able to take the ball and run with it, so to speak. Make it easy for them to understand. Our lives are to be billboards for God's grace. When people look at us, they should see that we are different because we have been with the Lord, because we have Jesus inside of us. That should be how we're advertised. That's the short answer is Jesus. Why aren't you worried? Why aren't you freaked out? Why aren't you like everybody else in this country right now? The short answer is Jesus. He didn't tell his disciples, you know, you guys will be my lawyers, or you guys will be my defense attorneys, or my PR firm. He said, you guys will be my witnesses in this city, in this country, and around the world. You guys will be my witnesses. When they look at you, they will witness me. They will see me in your life. And it shouldn't be complicated. Uh, It's simple, and a person should be able to understand it. Um, This is my job, like every single week, is to try to take the word and make it simple, make it easy to understand so that we can take it with us. Uh, Moses did these things. When Moses came down from the mountain, he had the tablets with the Ten Commandments, and they weren't complicated. They were simple. Like, somebody could have read them and run into the camp and explain them to everyone very simply. 
But you could also witness Moses' life and the way that he lived. And people knew that he had been in the presence of the Lord. He literally came down the mountain and his face was shining. And they knew his face was shining because he had been with the Lord. And his teaching, what he was relaying to the people of what God had said, was not complicated. If you read through the books of you know, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, some parts of those might be boring but they're not complicated. They're actually pretty simple. So what he was telling the people, they understood. So he said, make it plain, Habakkuk. Don't give the people a false solution for their suffering. They need to understand the reality of their future. They need to know about the pain that they're going to go through. But he did not leave them without hope. He did not leave them without hope. Um, A lot of people, even just in our small congregation that are going through hard times, painful things, and they know more painful things are coming, but God doesn't leave us without hope. He promises to be with us as we go through it, and he's going to see us through every step of the way. Uh, There were actually false prophets on the scene at this time, and they were telling the people, everything's going to be okay. What he's saying isn't true. Not going to happen. We're prosperous. We're protected. And Habakkuk's getting ready to tell people that's not the case. Uh, We need to tell people the truth, even if it hurts their feelings, right? To withhold the truth from them is a very, very uh, sinful thing. It really is. If we have the truth and the truth sets people free and we withhold it from them, um, that is a sin because it's a thing that we know that we should do. And he's going to tell them something something harsh, but he also um, lets them know that hope is going to come, that in God's timing, there will be restoration, there will be healing, and they will be redeemed. Okay, verse three. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. People are going to deny this. They're not going to believe it. Uh, Even our, our day, what do people say? They say, God isn't coming back. Like you guys have been saying this for 2000 years that Jesus is coming back and we don't see him. God is moving slowly. But in second Peter three, nine, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why does God appear to be moving slowly for the sake of sinners? God appears to be moving slowly for the sake of sinners. Um, he, he looks like he's delaying, but it's because of his mercy. To create the possibility of repentance and that it will spread widely. His timing is perfect. It's perfect. Think about it. Jesus came to this earth at a specific time to a specific people for a reason. Um, his covenant relationship with Israel was a picture of God's love for us. Um, to an undeserving, rebellious, um, unfaithful, caught up in religion, but without relationship people. And he gives them all of these symbols that point towards Jesus, all the feasts, all the sacrifices, and the temple, all of it pointed to a savior. And then after the ascension, after Jesus goes back up, the Roman oppression of the Christians causes them to spread out, to go across the world with the good news, with the gospel. And they were able to do this because of Roman ingenuity. This is actually interesting because the old saying, all, lo- all roads lead to Rome, 
was actually true. Uh, they had actually designed and built a sophisticated system of highways and roads where people could travel more safely, more quickly. And so the gospel spread. And Paul wrote the New Testament in Greek. No surprise, most of the world at that time spoke Greek. So Jesus came back at a time that was very specific and people could get it in a relatively quick way. I think that in our day and age that the internet is really the Roman road of our generation and one of the reasons why I believe that he is coming soon. The word spreads faster than it ever has before. And so all around the globe in an instant and that's what was happening um, in that day, that's why Jesus came back at the exact time that he did. People say, well, why didn't he come back now? I mean, it would have been so easy to get the word out to the world. All he would have to do is appear. He would be everywhere. Um, but he came at that time for a reason. And it's going to happen. Peter says that a thousand years are as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And that means basically God is outside of time. It's all relative to him, right? It doesn't matter. But I think this is super interesting. If we take that literally, that a day is as a thousand years. When Jesus was born, when he came to this world from what we would count as zero, one AD to a thousand AD is day one. And then a thousand and one to 2000 would be day two. And we are now in day three. We're in overtime. He's coming back soon. I believe in day three, maybe in our lifetime. That's what we're expecting. It's going to come to pass. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the central verse of Habakkuk. This is what the whole book is all about. The righteous shall live by his faith. Some translations say the just shall live by his faith. The justified. The just as if I'd never sinned. Um, If you've been following the you know, court hearings this week and the trials um, that was declared not guilty. We are not just declared not guilty, gang. We are declared this never even happened. You are justified just as if I'd never sinned. When God looks at you and you are in Jesus, it is, at, it is as though you have never sinned. That is an incredible thought. I was talking with somebody uh, just this week and he was saying, you know, I used to be, I used to think that when I went to heaven that they were going to show the movie of my life and it was going to be humiliating and it was going to be embarrassing and everybody was going to be there to watch all of the sins and all of the wrongs that I had done. And the beautiful thing is when we talked about it, that is not the case. We don't have the ability to forget. God does. And he forgives us and we're forgiven and we're justified as if we are in Christ and we had never sinned. So his soul is puffed up. That is the Babylonians. In Daniel 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's cruising around the top of his wall. There was a huge wall that went all the way around Babylon. It was so wide that they would actually race chariots around it. That's how thick this wall was. And he's cruising around the top of the wall, and he looks out over his kingdom, and he thinks to himself, look what I have accomplished. His soul was puffed up. And what God did is God turned him over to a deprived mind. Solomon says in Proverbs 16, 18, he says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And he did fall. Um, When God caused him to have a depraved mind, it says that he went out into the fields and he lived like an animal. Uh, Said that his hair grew down his back. It looked like feathers on his back. And that his 
nails became claws, and he lived like an animal out in the, out in the fields and ate grass like a cow. And then when God finally restored his mind, he came back and he said this. He said, there is only one who is worthy of honor, and that is God. He was puffed up, but God humbled him. And when he did, he gave glory to God. And we see this in our society today. People who think they are very wise, very intellectual, that they know more than everybody else. But it is as if there is a curtain over their eyes. They cannot see their need for a savior, for their sin. And they think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I don't need to add Jesus to my life. Or there's no such thing as God. I don't want to be held accountable to somebody, to his creator. And they're able to see, they're unable to see that, become proud and depraved spiritually and sometimes mentally. The righteous shall live by faith. This verse is actually mentioned in three other places in the Bible. Uh, it's mentioned, if you remember, when we went through the book of Galatians, Paul mentioned it there. Uh, also mentions it in Romans and then also in the book of Hebrews, uh, which we think was written by Paul, but we're not quite sure. Um, and this is a foundational point of the New Testament. This is kind of the hinge that it all swings on. We are saved by faith, right? We're saved by faith. But what he's telling Habakkuk is, you're going to have to trust me on this one. I'm telling you what's coming, but you're going to have to trust me. Not you should live by faith, or I want you to live by faith. He says the righteous will live by his faith. There's no other option. And this is one of the things that our society has so much trouble with because we don't have the answer for everything. We are living by faith and people try to live by their intellect. They try to live by their sight, by the things that they can hear and experience. They don't want to live by faith, but we know that he is going to do what is best even when we don't understand it. Faith has been called the currency of eternity. The currency of heaven is faith and we need to hear him with ears of faith. We need to see him with eyes of faith. If we're going to develop spiritually, then we have to walk by faith and not by sight. Kind of like a mom who's weaning her child, right? You can nurse a baby for a long time, but eventually they have to graduate to baby food and then to Cheerios and chicken nuggets and hot dogs, right? Our kids, we haven't weaned our kids off hot dogs yet. <laughs> That's what God's doing. He's weaning, off living, he's weaning us off, living on our senses, and coming to a place where we can mature spiritually and trust in him. Those who want to live in right relationship with the Lord and his people live by the trust in his promises. The righteous shall live by faith. Your life should back up what you say you believe. I read, a, I read a book once, and one of the uh, sayings in the book, one of the things it was talking about was, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If people were looking at your life from the outside, whether it is at your workplace or just out and about or in your family, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I went on a um, business meeting earlier this week, and I was talking with this guy. It was just supposed to be a regular meeting. And in the course of our conversation, we got talking about, spiritual they were talking about church and didn't even know this guy was a Christian. He brought it up and we started talking about it and said, you know, I used to go to church when I was younger, but as I witnessed the hypocrisy in the church, the people who said they believed one thing and lived a different way, he said, I don't need this in my life. If that's Christianity, I don't want any part of it. And the cool thing was this God has brought him back and he he 
uh, well, too much information, but he owns a franchise, and the people that are the franchise owners are Christians, and they do everything for Christ, and then he hired these people who are actually very radical Christians, and instead of the righteous being hemmed in by the wicked, he is like the wicked being hemmed in by the righteous. Uh, these people are radical, and they brought him back to the Lord, and what was supposed to be just a regular work conversation turned into us standing in his lobby and everybody praying for each other. It was a pretty cool uh, situation. I wasn't expecting that. Um, but the righteous shall live by their faith. And that's one of the things that his people were doing. And we got to talk about that in these times and what uh, Christians are, you know, dealing with here in America and having to, um, you know, trust God amidst all of the evil and all of the problems that we're seeing. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We cannot claim to be Christians, to be followers of Christ, if we do not have faith. And I don't mean just like an intellectual knowledge of faith. I mean an experiential, you know, part of faith where we're living it out. Uh, I think I've talked about this before, but there was a tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. And he was known, what we really got famous for was crossing the Niagara on, you know, a tightrope. They had spread it across and he walks all the way across. And then when he gets there, he walks all the way back with a wheelbarrow, pushes it across the tightrope. And everybody's cheering him on. And so he turns around and he says, who thinks that I can put a person in here and wheel them across to the other side? And everybody cheers. And he says, who wants to volunteer? <laughs> Nobody wants to volunteer. Everybody believes that he can do it, but they don't want to be the one to get in the wheelbarrow. Suddenly their faith was put to the test. What are we living by? Are we living by the things that we can see? Are we living by our jobs and our finances and, you know, the things that we lean on? Or are we living by faith? Okay, verse 5. There's like 20 verses in this, so I really have to go. Okay, <laughs> no laughing. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His grief his greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never had enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own, collects all his own, all peoples. All right, we, also, we already mentioned King, King Nebuchadnezzar. But once, once he died, the guy after him, his son, King Belshazzar, was actually kind of more wicked than his dad. And it tells us in Daniel 5 that Belshazzar was throwing a party, a feast for a thousand of his friends, a thousand officials. And it tells us specifically that he is standing up in front of everybody drinking, showing them how much he can consume. And he says, why don't we bring out the gold vessels that we took from Jerusalem that my dad brought back and let's drink out of those. So it's not enough that we're partying. Let's get the vessels from the Lord's house and let's drink out of those. And it says, what had happened is that all of the sudden a hand appears. A hand appears and starts to write on the wall. And he is understandably pretty freaked out. Probably thinks he's hallucinating at this point, depending on how much he's had. And it's interesting because in the King James Version, it says that the joints of his loins were loosed, which basically means he needed a wardrobe change. He got freaked out. And the queen tells him at that point about a guy who can interpret things, can interpret dreams, about Daniel. And so they bring Daniel in. Now, Daniel at this point is in his 60s. He's seen a lot. He's seen a lot from 
growing up in Israel to being carried away to Babylon, the lion's den, to Nebuchadnezzar, and now to Belshazzar. And he calls him in to interpret it. And he, he tries to incentivize him to say, listen, I will give you all this stuff if you will interpret what's been written on the wall. And Daniel says, keep your stuff. Here's what the Lord says. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and his writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, or parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And what happened that night? Those words came true, and Belshazzar died, and his kingdom was divided and given to the Peds, the and the, the Persians and the Medes. Medes and Persians. Okay, now we get to what's called the woes to the Chaldeans. These are actually taunts that God gives his people. They're the words of the Lord against the Babylonians, but they're also words that he gives his people to taunt them as they are getting taken over because they're talking about what's going to happen in the future. Kind of like if the devil reminds you of your past, then just remind him of his future, that kind of thing. It's a taunt. It's predicting what's going to come to pass because we know, we've read it, we know the ending. It might be bad now, but judgment is coming. Hope will be restored. That's part of living in faith. So verse 6, the first woe. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to you who get wealthy by extortion and load themselves down with debt, with pledges. They cheat people out of the money they have and they have no plans to pay it back. Uh, God says the tables are going to be turned and the people that you've plundered are going to actually plunder you. All the Israelites, all the surrounding nations, they're going to take care of you. All the violence to the earth, to the cities, to the people. Basically, like Jesus told Peter, those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. If we try to consume, we're going to be consumed. Archaeologists in East Africa uncovered um, some skeletons, which was really interesting. They were saber-toothed tiger skeletons. And the weird thing about them was that they were joined together at the teeth, these sabers that they had. They were joined together. And what they think happened is that these saber-toothed tigers had started fighting. And in the, in the process of that, they had gotten their mouths, their tusks locked up together, and they both starved to death. That's pretty weird. So when we try to consume, it's kind of a good analogy. When we try to consume, we ourselves will be consumed in the process. The second woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to the person who steals from others and think they have security. He thinks he's safe because of his wealth. What you have gained is actually going to be shame instead of safety. If you're proud of all the stuff that you've accumulated, 
guess what? It's all going to rot. It's all going to fall apart. And then what you're going to realize to your shame is that your life has been wasted. People try to fill their lives to make it better with all kinds of stuff. And that stuff is just going to rot. It's going to end up in a junkyard. Uh, we had bulk pickup this last week. Thank goodness for junk, junk pickup, man, bulk pickup. Uh, we had an old keyboard and we had a flat screen TV. I don't know how you get rid of flat screen TVs, if anybody can help me out on that one. Um, I almost had to pay somebody to take this thing away that I thought was so cool when I hung it on the wall as I watched it. So proud of that thing. And here I am walking it out to the curb, dropping it on the, you know, on the lawn. All the things that we own are going to end up in a junkyard. Don't let the things that we own own you and become a source of shame in the end. And the house is going to cry out against them. Basically, creation. Creation is going to accuse them. The house is going to cry out against its ruined builder. Uh, sounds kind of strange that creation's going to, going to cry out. But if we think back to Jesus in his triumphal entry, when he rides the donkey into Jerusalem, and the people are all crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the, you know, the Pharisees and all the religious people are standing there and they're telling Jesus, listen, you need to tell your people to be quiet. You need to rebuke them. Like you're not the Messiah. Tell them that they need to stop saying that. And Jesus said, Hey, if they don't cry out, then the rocks will cry out. Creation will cry out honestly. If these people stop talking and proclaiming the truth. And what they're saying here is that the beams and the rocks in the house are going to cry out and speak honestly. Woe number three, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The things they've done, everything that they've built, everything they've amassed is going to be futile. It's going to be burned up. Today, our stuff may not be burned up, but we get burned out right? Chasing things, chasing happiness. Uh, people in this world, whether it's, you know, working, being workaholics, or just trying to chase the next experience, become burned out, and they find it to be empty and futile. Uh, then we have this verse. It feels a little bit out of place as they're going through the woes, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the, you know, waters cover the sea. And in the midst of the woes, there are five woes. So you got two and two, and then right in the middle is this verse of hope. And it's a reference to how God's going to bless the world through the Jewish people in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only in this world, but in the next, in the new heaven and the new earth, where the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the world. Um, really, as we live by faith, um, our faith lives on the memories of his provision and the hope of his future promises lives on the memory of his provision, all the things that he's done in the past and the promises um, that he's got for us in the future. You know, we sing that song. I love the song, Hymn of Heaven. I think we sang it last week. There will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with he who died and rose again. Holy, holy is the Lord. Um, he died and rose again, his provision. And there will be a day, his promise. When he will go and he's going to come again and everything will be made right. The fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself 
and show your uncircumcision, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as the destruction of the beast that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols? Uh, this will has multiple aspects. You could probably preach a whole sermon on just these couple verses right here uh, when we talk about the destruction of man and animals and the earth itself. And then we have idols. We just talked about how the Babylonians were known for their parties, for their consumption of wine. And you don't have to look very hard to know or to notice that our country has an obsession with alcohol. We have a problem with it. You don't have to look very far. Um, when I talk to people at work about what you, when I hear people ask, what'd you do last night or what'd you do this weekend? Invariably, and part of the story is alcohol. And either, you know, they had to go home and have a glass of wine or they had to, you know, sit around all weekend and, you know, drink some cold ones. Uh, I was looking, my business is advertising, but I was looking at Anheuser-Busch, which is the number one beer company, and how much they spent in advertising. And in 2019, they spent, just in the, just in the United States, $1.5 billion in advertising. People know who they are. Now, I understand this has become a very touchy subject. In the church, because it's a lot more, you know, acceptable or it's becoming more normal. And people will say things like, well, Nathan, Jesus drank wine. Yes, he did. Um, in that culture, wine was very symbolic. It was symbolic of life. It was symbolic of the Lord's covenant. But it was also a curse. It was a blessing, but it was also called a curse. Jesus used wine to symbolize the new covenant. He did that with communion. That's what he did with the disciples. The very first miracle that Jesus performed was transforming water into wine at a wedding so that this young couple wouldn't be embarrassed because the people were celebrating. So we have the new covenant. We have celebration. Um, but then we also know that God's wrath is compared to a cup of wine. And it says here in verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you. And that is the wine of his wrath. And if you read through Revelations, we see that quite a few times. This is why it's a tough one. Um, it's recorded as a blessing, but then it's also recorded as a curse. So what is the Bible's stance on it, right? If people ask the question, what is the Bible's stance on drinking? Um, it is this, be careful. Better be real careful is what the stance on it is. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 17. Come talk to me afterwards if you want to. Um, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. If you're a Bible student, you've probably heard of the cedars of Lebanon, right? The national flag of Lebanon has a cedar tree on it. And this was one of the most sought-after uh, woodworking pieces that you could get. David did a deal with um, the Lebanon you know, country to get cedars to build his palace. And Solomon, his temple was built with cedar wood. And when they went across the land, when they entered that portion of the world, they literally clear-cut the land. They were cutting down the cedars to take them back and build their houses. So not only were they getting people drunk to uncover their nakedness, they were also bearing the land. 
and cutting it um, naked. And they destroyed the towns, the people, the land, even the animals. They were really just a machine that was consuming everything as they went. And this is one of the reasons why judgment is coming down under them. God says, all of these people that you're plundering are going to turn around and they're going to plunder you. Verse 18 um, actually runs right into the last row about, uh, woe about idols. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation, and when he makes a speechless idol, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Idolatry. This was a huge problem for the people of Israel. Uh, they came out of Egypt, a country that was famous for its idolatry, for all of the gods that it had and served. And they, hadn't, they had a tough time with this. They had a, you know, it says that God took 40 years to get Egypt out of the people. He took them out of Egypt quickly, right? Over a short period of time, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And they were constantly falling into idolatry. Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he was only gone 40 days. And they fell into idolatry. He came down the mountain and, you know, talks to Aaron. Aaron, what happened? You've got this golden calf. And he says, well, people gave me gold. I mean, I just threw it into the furnace, and out came this calf. It's not my fault. It's people's fault. When they came into Canaan, they had a real problem with idolatry. Listen to how they're described. They do not profit. They're of no value. They teach lies. They can't talk, can't come to life, can't wake up, cannot give guidance. They have no breath. It's interesting because our God is just the opposite of that. He's infinite value. He is truth. He does talk and communicate with his people. He is the giver of life. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. The Holy Spirit is our counselor, the one that guides us. And the word in the Greek for the Holy Spirit is pneuma, which literally means breath. He is the breath of life. So we tend to idolize things in our culture. We don't have idols per se, um, but we have American idols. Um, we have things like sports teams and we have cars and we have houses. We have all of these things. And if they get lifted up above God at any point in time, exalted over him, then it has become an idol in our life. Really kind of reminds me of Elijah. Uh, Elijah goes to the prophets of Baal and he says, listen, we're going to settle this once and for all, who the real God is. You guys have idols, you have Baal. Let's figure this out right now. So he says, all 450 of you meet me at the top of Mount Carmel and we're going to get down to the bottom of this. And so they all go up to the top of Mount Carmel. You guys probably know the story. And each of them build altars. And he says, the God who answers with fire, that is the real God. And so the prophets of Baal start out, they do their thing. It says that they were chanting and they were yelling and screaming. And then they started to cut themselves because nothing was happening. And they did this from morning to noon, and everybody's sitting around just watching this show, and nothing happens. And so Elijah starts to poke fun at them. He starts to taunt the prophets of Baal. He says this in 1 Kings 18, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. He's like, you know, he's a god, right? I mean, pfft. Maybe you need to scream a little louder. Like maybe he's in the bathroom or maybe, maybe he took a trip. You know, he just can't hear you. He, had to he didn't get the memo that we were all going to be here today. So maybe if you just yell a little louder or he's sleeping, 
You know, like he had to take a nap. He was pretty tired. So he starts to poke fun at them and nothing happens. And Elijah says, all right, it's my turn. And he stands up and he says a short prayer to the Lord and fire comes down and burns up everything. Burns up the sacrifice, burns up the wood, burns up the stones and all the water that they had poured on it just to make it more improbable that it would happen. And the people who had kept their mouths shut up to this point, they didn't answer anything, didn't even answer Elijah. Now all of a sudden, when the fire comes down, they said, the Lord, he is God. You think? Yes, he is. No more idols for you. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You guys can come back up. Uh, The prince of peace, his kingdom will come down just like the fire came down because the Lord is in his holy temple and all the earth keeps silent in reverent worship. And this just wasn't a silence of reverence. It was also an acceptance of this judgment that God is pouring out against this nation for their sin. Um, It was the calm before the storm, so to speak. Uh, Or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's what Gandalf would say that is the deep breath before the plunge. In Revelations 8, John writes that there was silence in heaven for a half an hour before the last scroll was opened and judgment was poured out. There was silence because the Lord was in his holy temple. Judgment will come to this earth just like it did for the Babylonians in God's timing. In God's timing. But until that time, he has given us, just like he gave the people of Israel, a lament. Right? A lament, a song, a longing, a knowing that things aren't the way that they should be. Not that the way that they will be. He's given us this desire for heaven inside of us. Um, It really is the seedbed of hope for victims that are going to be hopeful survivors. People that are taking hits now. People that are living in circumstances where they feel like it's hopeless. Read the story um, that Alexander the Great, as he was setting out to conquer Asia, uh, for some reason he was inquiring as to the financial state of his army, of his generals, and of all of his captains. And he says, How are they doing? Because I don't want them to, you know, worry about what's going on back home while we're out, you know, fighting battles. And to ensure that they wouldn't be troubled or worried while they were gone, he took all the treasury that he had and he dispersed it to the families of his men so that they could go forth and not worry about that. And when he had gotten rid of almost all of the riches of the kingdom, his general, who was a friend of him, asked Alexander, he said, how much did you keep back for yourself? What did you keep back for yourself, Alexander? And he said, hope. I kept back hope. That's what I did by dispersing all of that. And his general said, in that case, we who share in your labors will also take part in your hope. And so they refused all the stuff that he was going to give them. And as I think of that, Jesus gave away everything. He divested himself when he came here as a man. He left all of his riches behind. And as his followers, this world is not to own us. We are to divest ourselves of anything that would hold us back from following him. Because we share in his labors. We share in that hope. Just as he did. That's the message of chapter 2. Things might look bad now. But righteousness will win out. 
will win out. Judgment will come in his timing, regardless of whether or not we see it in our lifetime. We may not see it. The prophets didn't see it always in their lifetime, but they trusted in hope that he's going to heal and he's going to restore. And we have that hope inside of us. And we need to remind each other of it often. When we get down, when we get depressed, when we get defeated, we need to remind each other that his hope is going to win out. And we all have that available to us because he is in his holy temple, right? Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. 